Father, we sin. Grant that we may never cease grieving because of it. Grant that we may view our sin as an assault on your righteousness. As spitting on your holy face. As a call to arms against your kingdom. As kicking dirt on your glorious feet. We see our sin as too docile. Too unoffensive. Too innocent. We have hearts that are bent on disobeying you. Bent on minimizing our sin. Bent on casually treating your holiness. We have too low a view of the offensiveness of our sin and too high a view of the sincerity of our penitence for our sin. Today, through this text in 1 Samuel, will you increase our awareness of the atrociousness of our sin and increase the awareness of the all-consuming gloriousness of your holiness. May we be consumed by it today. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Today, we say goodbye to 1 Samuel. We've been in this book for weeks, for months. Uh, these have always been my most challenging sermons. The last sermon to close out a book. It feels like it's so much pressure. How do you summarize everything and bring it to a satisfactory conclusion? On top of that, I just hate saying goodbye. My, my wife loves to say goodbye. She loves to drag it out and make it memorable and meaningful. Once every five years, we take a trip without the kids. And it's not a goodbye unless everyone is crying as we leave. <laughs> She married the exact opposite. I, I, don't, I don't even say goodbye on the phone. I just say what I need to say and then I hang up. That's what my dad always did. Uh, I would be talking to him and, and then suddenly realize he hung up a long time ago. Sarah and I spoke to one of our kids on the phone on Thursday and he hung up without saying goodbye. Sarah looked at me and said, I wonder where he got that from. <laughs> I said, from where he gets all of his bad influences? Your parents. <laughs> I, I don't like saying goodbye, whether it's face-to-face -face or on the phone or to a book of the Bible. How can we say goodbye to 1 Samuel when the story today leaves us hanging? It's unfinished. You don't want to say goodbye on that note. Here's the good news. We aren't really going to say goodbye. We're going to say see you later. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are really one book in the Hebrew. It's one story. The first verse of 2 Samuel picks up where the last verse of 1 Samuel left off. Beginning next week, I'm going to Revelation for 22 weeks. After that, we are coming back to Samuel. Next chapter, next verse, 2 Samuel chapter 1. Verse 1. Now that that's out of the way, let's talk about how we're going to say see you later to this book. We are on week 17. It's not that we picked up the pace the last two weeks. It's that those narrative units formed bigger blocks. So we had to follow the narrative plot line without breaking it up. Uh, week 1 was uh, September 26th of last year. 
How do we finish the last three chapters of this book when they are so closely tied to the previous 28 chapters? Well, we're going to have to make that connection. Let me give you some hooks to hang everything I'm going to give you. The first hook, reviewing 1 Samuel. This is where I will review chapters 1 through 28. That's over 700 verses, 16 sermons, 14 hours of exposition, and that's just the first hook. <laughs> We've got two more. Does that scare you? I'm going to try to do it in about 10 minutes. But that review is important because it lays the groundwork for the final three chapters. These are not just a bunch of disconnected narratives. They are all leading to something. Reviewing 1 Samuel, then finishing 1 Samuel. That's our exposition today. That's where we will walk through the final three chapters. All fresh material, new storylines. Finally, we will apply 1 Samuel. Reviewing 1 Samuel, finishing 1 Samuel, applying 1 Samuel. We will pull truths that started in the beginning of the book, but find their fulfillment at the end of the book. Let's begin reviewing 1 Samuel. Why is the book of 1 Samuel important in God's unfolding drama of redemption? Well, ever since Moses led the nation of Israel out of Egypt, they had consisted of a loosely organized confederation of tribes governed as a theocracy. God was their king. And he ruled through designated leaders called judges. People like Gideon and Samson. This was a 400 year period. Tribes were independent, joining only temporarily for the purposes of joint military adventures. Israel had no standing army, just individual tribes. And there was a strong and popular demand for a king. They wanted a king who would go out and fight their battles. Because judges were, were limited by their geographical boundaries and didn't appoint successors, they wanted a leader to unite the tribes. 1 Samuel records Israel's transition from tribal confederacy to a nation under a king, from theocracy to monarchy. 1 Samuel records the end of the office of the judges and the beginning of the office of the king. It introduces the last of the judges and the first of the kings. And this is quite a big transition in God's unfolding redemptive story. From this moment on, God's people are looking for God's perfect king. The book begins with a woman weeping in Shiloh. She's barren, unable to have children. Sorrow opens the book of 1 Samuel. God heard Hannah's prayer and gave her a child. She named him Samuel, meaning God heard. I'll call his name God hears because God heard. I'll call him Samuel because God Samueled. Hannah made a commitment that if God gave her a child, she would give him back to God to serve his life out in the tabernacle. And she did just that. Dropped him off at age three. She visited once a year to make her peace offering and each time would bring a new robe to keep him warm. Each year she made the robe a little big so it would provide for a year's growth for the boy. Samuel is the first to wear a robe in the book. This will become a motif throughout. The narrator put the main characters in robes. 
Worship at the tabernacle was a farce. The high priest Eli let his young priestly sons run wild. They bullied worshipers and stole meat and slept around with women. It was disgusting. Samuel grew up with this debauchery going on around him. At age 12, God spoke to Samuel and told him Eli's priesthood is rejected. And from that moment on, Samuel became the spiritual leader of Israel. In chapter 4, the Philistines are mentioned for the first time in the book. It will not be the last. They are mentioned over 150 times. The Philistines were a feisty bunch. They were sea peoples who invaded Canaan. Canaan land, God's promised land for Israel. Many historians say they originated on the island of Crete. They built ships and sailed away because they desired more land than the island could supply. Sea peoples, pirates of the Old Testament. They eventually got tired of living on ships, so they beached off the Mediterranean Sea. They made aggressive incursions into Israel's territory. After spending so long on the sea, they developed an appetite for land. They wanted to eat up more of it. Hence their constant fighting with Israel. You have the coastal people versus the people in the hills. God's people. In one of the battles, Israel took a massive beating. 34,000 died. The ark was captured and placed in the temple of Dagon, the national god of the Philistines. They viewed the box like a trophy of war, a conquered relic. They, they, they viewed the ark as, as Israel's god. See, no battle was just between two nations. Every battle was between two gods. So they believed their god defeated Israel's god. Whatever power the defeated god possessed would be harnessed for the purposes of Dagon. The Philistines set a big day for the commoners to come and view the new conquered god. But when they went into the temple of Dagon, Dagon was decapitated and dismembered, lying limbless with his head cut off. And this is significant because severed heads were war trophies. I read non-inspired historical accounts about men returning from war dragging a string of heads. God was showing the Philistines, you decapitate 34,000 of my people and I will decapitate your God. The Philistines played hot potato with the ark for a while before eventually sending it back to Israel because of all the plagues that accompanied it. In 1 Samuel 8, Israel demanded a king like the other nations. Samuel went on a search and rescue and went on a search mission and, and found a young farm boy named Saul. He was a big boy, head and shoulders above everyone else. He is Israel's new king. Samuel stands up and says, Behold your king. He looks over and Saul is not there. Samuel looks around. Saul is missing. He's nowhere to be found. The coronation event turned into a comedy rather than a dignified crowning. Saul was tall in stature, but short in courage. Here's your king. The one scared to be king, hiding among the sleeping bags. But the people, the people loved him. Over the next few years, Saul led the people of Israel well. They won many battles. His first act was to save a city called Jabesh-Gilead. 
they were surrounded by a vicious warlord and about to have their right eyes gouged out. Saul came in in the nick of time and rescued the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Jonathan, Saul's son, is introduced into the story. He's a, he's a brave warrior and a loyal man. In chapter 15, God commanded Saul in one of the battles to kill all the Amalekites. God wanted this done because the Amalekites were the first to oppose Israel after the Exodus. When Israel came out of Egypt, the Amalekites ambushed them from behind. It was a dirty attack. They, they picked off the weak, the sick, the elderly. They brutally murdered the stragglers. Israel was alone and defenseless in the wilderness and the Amalekites pillaged them, ruthlessly abusing the captive women. Saul killed a lot of Amalekites, but not all of them. He did partial obedience. God immediately rejected him as Israel's king because of his disobedience. His son Jonathan would not reign after him and Saul will have his crown ripped away. God sends Samuel on a search for a new king, Israel's second king. Samuel finds God's man in the fields of Bethlehem. He's the forgotten son of Bethlehem. Yeah, I got, I got one more little runt in the field. Samuel anointed David as Israel's next king. Years pass before he will actually take office, but everything's in motion. When Israel faces the Philistine pirates again, the Philistines send out their giant, Goliath. Israel should send out their giant, Saul. He's head and shoulders above everyone else, the closest thing Israel has to a giant. But Saul in this moment was not a king who would go out before his people and defend them. Instead, David goes and kills Goliath and cuts his head off to keep with the theme of decapitation. David and Jonathan, Saul's son, became best friends. Jonathan is old enough to be David's dad, but they had a tight friendship. David becomes one of Saul's top military men, and he climbs the ladder rather quickly. He comes back from one battle, and the women in the street start singing, Saul has killed his thousands, and David, his ten thousands. This ate Saul up. He turned into a big green monster. Jealousy overtook him. He spent the remainder of the book trying to kill David, forcing him to run for his life. One scene shows Saul sitting under a tamarisk tree, fuming that people are praising David. David is now a fugitive of the law, and he will be that way for 10 years. David had plenty of chances to kill Saul, but refused every time. Saul would be made aware of David's opportunity, and then he would temporarily repent and call off the chase. But it never lasted. The story continues. Samuel soon dies. We see his birth and his death in the book. Then we have some godless chapters. Chapter 27 and 28. Godless chapters. A time when David doesn't seek the Lord. He loses faith. He runs to join rank with the pirates. He lives in Philistine territory with them. Philistine King Achis is more than happy to grant refuge to David and his 600 men if 
they agreed to be loyal, loyal warriors for the Philistines. And they agreed. King Achis gives David Ziklag, a little country town. David and his family live there, and all the, his 600 men and their wives and children. Reviewing 1 Samuel. Now, finishing 1 Samuel. The exposition. The 100-year war between the Philistines and Israel heats up again, and the battle lines are drawn. Israel has gathered their forces, and the Philistines are in the process of gathering their forces. King Achis told David, now it's time for you to make good on your promise. You're going to go to battle with us. David and his 600 men gladly suit up. He's going to go to war against his own people. David's going against God's people. This may seem surprising to you, but people do surprising things when they've neglected communication with God. David and his 600 loyal men leave the country town of Ziklag, see it at the bottom of the screen, and they travel north to Gath in order to meet King Achis and the Gath warriors. They all march toward Aphek. It's a 30-mile march. On the way, they pick up another group of soldiers in Ekron. At the same time, other Philistine divisions begin marching. A group leaves from Gaza and meets with a group from Ashkelon. And those two travel together and meet with a group from Ashdod. All three divisions head for Aphek. Chapter 19 of 1 Samuel verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. Saul chose this location for the Israelites, the valley of Jezreel, because there would be plenty of freshwater springs as, as well as food. They've been waiting for the Philistines to arrive. Now what did Saul do while they were waiting? He went to visit the witch of Endor, located on your map just north of the valley. Saul tried to seek the Lord, but God stopped talking to Saul. So Saul went to a witch. You remember that from last week. Samuel came back from the dead wearing the robe and said, you want to know what will happen with the battle tomorrow? You will die, you and all your sons. You have 24 hours to live. This was one final message of judgment through the prophet Samuel, but it was also one final invitation to repentance. It would be great to read that Saul fell down and repented. But instead, we read, Saul went forward with the battle. Once all the Philistine divisions arrived at Aphek, notice verse 3. The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him. The Philistine army generals abandoned protocol of deference that's usually accorded a king. And they march right up to his face and they say, what are these Israelites doing here? The king, a little startled, says, David and his men defected to me. 
They've been with me for days, for months, even years. That was a lie. David had only been with him for 16 months. The generals become angry. They will hear none of it. They demand that the king send David and his men back to Ziklag. If David goes to battle with us, he will switch sides in the middle of the fight. Think about it, King Achish. How did David gain favor with Saul in the first place? Brought him the head of Goliath, right? He will do the same with our heads. Verse 4. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. This is the third mention of this song in the book. The first time it was sung, it infuriated Saul and began his bitterness toward David. This song still infuriates the Philistines. The king reluctantly agrees. He tactfully informs David of his expulsion from the army. I believe in you, but they don't. You, you can't fight with us tomorrow. You must leave. Verse 8. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have, I, what have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? What is David doing? He's protesting. He's eager to fight his own people. The king responds, you're a good man. As far as I'm concerned, God's angel. But the Philistine generals were emphatic. They don't trust you. In the morning, I want you and your 600 men, I want you to leave, and I want you to leave early, and I want you to head back to your families. At the same time, we will all go the final 40 miles, and we'll fight with Israel. It's interesting that the pagan king said of David, I find no fault in him. Years later, another pagan king will say of Jesus, I find no fault in him. Those words were not true of David. They were true of Jesus Christ, the better David. Now, it's impossible not to speculate. <laughs> Would David have killed his own people? Or were the general's intuition correct and David would have turned on the pirates? Well, I think David would have fought against his own people. He's away from God right now. He's making dumb decisions. Even when he was sent away, he doesn't stop the Philistine army. He only wishes them well. God is at work behind the scenes arousing these generals to question David's loyalties. God wanted Saul dead. And he didn't want David anywhere close to it. So he moves David 100 miles away. It's God's providential hand that keeps David from participating in this battle. I think we can just chalk this up to the, to the quiet mercies of God. The next two chapters split. Chapter 30 will follow David. Chapter 31 will follow the king of Gath. Chapter 30 and 31 happen simultaneously. David and his men travel for three days to make it home. It's a 60 to 70 mile march, a long one. As they crest the hill above Ziklag, they see smoke. They witness Ziklag amid smoking ruins. Their little country town burned to the ground. 
They break rank and they all start running to their homes. They are frantic. They fear for their wives. They fear for their children. Are they alive? They run with reckless abandon. Falling down the hill, they're moving so quickly. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, that's how long the march took, the Amalekites, now church, this should trigger for you. This is the same group that Saul failed to eliminate as God commanded. The Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. What they did to Ziklag was what modern-day Boko Haram does to villages in Nigeria. Except the text keys us in that the Amalekites did not kill any women and children. Not yet, anyway. One of the verbs used here is the verb to drive cattle. They whipped them and drove them out of the city. The Amalekites intend to sell the women and children in the slave markets of Egypt. These savages put little children in cages and young girls in cages and threw the cages onto wagons to be pulled by mules. Little fingers coming out through the grates calling their mothers. Little girls screaming their dad's name to come and save them. Verse 4, Then David and his people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. You ever witnessed a grown man cry? You ever witnessed military men cry? Well, you have 600 military men falling on their knees, beating the ground with their fists, screaming for their wives and children. Why? They cry until they have no strength to lift their bodies off the dirt. They cry and, until they run out of tears. They cry until they lose their voice. They cry until they become insanely angry. Verse 6. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. In the blackened, smoldering ruins, they turn on David. Mutiny follows. Explosive outburst, uncontrollable rage. They pick up rocks ready to shatter his skull and spill his blood. David has nowhere to turn and nowhere to run. He's lost his credibility. He's lost the loyalty of his men. He's penniless and wifeless. And now he's friendless. He's never stood so alone. Sometimes. Sometimes God will allow your world to fall apart to get your attention. To regain your heart. One commentator points out that for the first time in nearly two years, David talks to God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He hasn't spoken to God since chapter 26, verse 8. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? God answered him, Pursue. For you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. 
So David and his 600 men set out to pursue the Amalekites. The Amalekites are nomads. You don't just go to their hometown. They don't have one. They're constantly moving. On the search, David and his men reach a resting place, the brook Bezor. 200 of the 600 men drop out. They say, we can't go any further. They've just finished a, a three-day march, and, and now they're marching again, traveling in the unpopulated desert under harsh conditions. The adrenaline is wearing off. They've been weeping, going through emotional shock. They are physically exhausted, dead tired. They say, we are too fatigued to cross. David's army is now reduced by a third. They push on. In the distance, they see, a, they see a dead animal. At least they think it's dead. They think it's an animal. They aren't sure if their eyes are playing tricks on them. The, the desert air and the sandstorm seem to blur things and make them hallucinate. As they get closer, it's, it's not an animal. It's a person. He's not dead. He's clinging to his last breath of life. They found an Egyptian. He has scorpions crawling all around him and buzzards circling overhead. Verse 11, they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. He has parched lips and eyes he can barely hold open. They, they pour water in his mouth. Make him chew some bread. He's skin and bones. He's been without food for 72 hours. Day three with no water. He's dead tomorrow. He's an Egyptian slave who had been abandoned because of his sickness. The Amalekites left him to die in the open desert. He began to revive. They gave him, verse 12, dessert, a piece of cake. I don't think I would have done that. I think I would have punched him and kicked him, and said, where's my daughter? Where are my wife and boys? David and his men don't do that. They play the smart game. Verse 13. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against, the, uh, against that which belongs to Judah, against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. David restrains himself and chooses not to choke the life out of him. David says, take me down to this band. Do you know where the nomads are camping out? The skinny Egyptian is scared for his life, and he says, are you going to give me into their hands when you find them? David assures him, uh, I will not. The skinny Egyptian takes David and his men to the exact location. They view the campsite from above. They see the Amalekites gorging themselves on the loot they plundered and sloshing around drunk as a bunch of skunks. They are dancing and laughing and playing music. It's a party down there. They're scattered over a wide area. David and his men see the cages full of women and children. Their women, their children. 
David's 600 men pounce all at once. Then verse 17, they struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. The Amalekite army was so large that David's 600 men killed them all day and all night and then into the next day. That's just got to be a lot of people. So many people that 400 escaped on camels. So the whole group must have numbered into the thousands. 2,000, 3,000. Nothing was lost. Not a piece of money, not a, not a piece of garment, not a child or a wife. David and his men recovered all. That does not mean there wasn't sexual abuse. That does not mean there wasn't physical abuse. It just means they didn't kill any of them. Now, side note, it's interesting that in Exodus 17, <laughs> the people wanted to stone Moses right before a victory over the Amalekites. And we see the same here with David. Verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who had left him at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. Now picture this scene. Hugs and kisses, families reunited. Did they hurt you? Did they touch you? I was so worried. Verse 22. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they didn't go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead his wife and children and depart. In other words, each man can have his wife and children, but that's it. Take them and go. He who does not fight does not eat. Now think about this. They've been in desert foxholes with these men for 10 years. And suddenly they just write them off. David interrupts, families don't do this sort of thing. Oh no, my brothers. Those who went to battle will receive the same share as those who were too drained to go to battle. David actually made it a law in Israel from that day forward. He emphasized to the men that it was the Lord that gave the victory. We will not claim any of this as a result of our determination to keep marching when we were tired. God did this. When they returned to Ziklag... David returns the spoil to the surrounding cities and villages. Uh, many of these communities endured Amalekite raids as well. When David and the king of Gath split in Aphek, chapter 30 followed David, chapter 31 followed the king of Gath. The events we are about to read happen simultaneously with what David just experienced. The battle has already started. We're late. We need to get there, find out what's going on. 1 Samuel 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. Church, I don't want to pass quickly over this. Jonathan, Saul's son, loyal warrior, David's best friend and most loyal friend, has just been killed on the battlefield. And evidently, Saul has taken a couple of arrows and he's lost his ability to run. 
He's bleeding out, but he knows it's going to be a slow death. Verse 4. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword. And Israel's first king, he fell upon it. Saul didn't want the pagan pigs to come and make a game out of killing him. They will abuse me and stick things in places where I would rather die than experience. There are only four examples of suicide in the Bible. This is one. Verse 5. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. Samuel's haunting words from beyond the grave less than a day ago should ring in our ears. You and your three sons will die. When the Israelite army received word that their king and his sons were dead, they made a run for it. They abandoned their cities and, and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in the cities. Uh, the Philistines cut Israel's territory in two. There were still Israelite strongholds in the north and the south, but they couldn't communicate with one another. I, I do find it interesting that Saul died doing what he was supposed to do, protecting the nation as its king. He, he died in battle. He, he went before and with his people in battle. It's what Israel always wanted in a king. What they didn't calculate was their nation could lose battles strictly based on the disobedience of their king. The next day, the Philistines came to strip the slain to do their mop-up operation. And they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa, so they decapitated Saul. They cut off the head of Israel's giant. Israel did this to their giant, and, and now we will do this to Israel's. Excuse me. The Philistines... Israel did this to the Philistines' giant. Now the Philistines will do this to Israel's giant. Verse 10. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Ashtaroth was another Philistine god. 1 Chronicles 10.10 lets us in on a little more detail. They put Saul's armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head to the temple of Dagon. The same temple where God decapitated Dagon. The Philistines mount Saul's head like you would mount a deer. Saul had been hunted down and mounted. And it looks like all hope is lost. Dagon lost at the beginning, but it's like he won now. They stripped Saul of his uniform and they nailed his corpse to the wall at Bethshan. His headless, naked corpse. How did they fasten his body to the wall? Sometimes they would do it with a pole through the rectum and out through the neck in front of the wall. Not sure how they did it here, but it was a warning to all of Israel, do not mess with the pirates. You need to see, church, that this is not merely celebrating a victory, but making a theological statement. Our God defeated Israel's God. John Woodhouse says, Every mockery of God and his people, 
Every expression of scorn toward the Lord Jesus and his followers is a version of the Philistine gospel. And they were preaching this gospel loud and proud. They are preaching this gospel by hanging a dead Israelite body out in the open. Verse 11. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done, all the valiant men arose. I like that phrase. All the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. These men of Jabesh-Gilead had been helped by Saul earlier on in the book. For 40 years, they kept alive the memory of their debt to Saul. We have our right eyes because of this man. So they go on a secret mission. They remove the four impaled bodies, Saul and his three sons. They could not watch the disgraceful treatment of the royal family's corpses. Now, why did they burn the bodies? The process of decomposition had already begun to take place. The carrion birds were already eating the flesh. Maggots were already reproducing in the neck area where the head used to be. The risk of contagion was legit. Plagued corpses. As in the case found in Amos 6, the putrid nature of the decomposing bodies required them to burn it. Burn it to avoid the risk of infection. But notice that they kept the bones. So this is not an example of cremation. Cremation, except in the case of criminals, was not a Hebrew practice. It was, however, practiced by the Philistines. But notice what they did with the bones, verse 13. And when they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree. This is the same tree Saul sat under earlier in the book. Now he's buried under it. Israel lost their king. The book starts without a king. And what a happy ending. It ends without a king. Even though Saul's death was the result of divine discipline, we do not celebrate. We lament. David goes on in 2 Samuel to eulogize Saul. Reviewing 1 Samuel, that was chapters 1 through 28. Finishing 1 Samuel, that was chapters 29, 30, and 31. That was our exposition. Now applying 1 Samuel. Reviewing 1 Samuel, finishing 1 Samuel. And let's land the plane here with three applications. Application number one. Learn from the life of Saul. And don't wait to repent. Saul is a complex and tragic man. Saul started with great potential but had a downward trajectory. Saul reveals for us what false repentance looks like. He went through the motions of repenting, but never truly repented. The lack of genuine repentance was evidenced by his unchanged behavior. False repentance leads to a temporarily changed life, but not a consistently changed life. Friend, do you have moments of repenting, but then you go back to the same way you've always lived? It's this continual pattern. That's false repentance. Saul reveals to us what false repentance looks like, and Saul also reveals to us what false repentance produces. False repentance produces sorrow, but it's the wrong kind of sorrow. Saul never experienced godly sorrow. Have you? 
Have you ever experienced godly sorrow for your sins breaking the heart of God? Saul was a religious man, but lost. You can put verses on social media. You can thank God when you've diverted some disaster. You can attend worship gatherings and still be lost. You can use religious language and make vague commitments like Saul, but not be genuinely converted. Friends, put your faith in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary atoning work alone. Here's what's scary about Saul, and honestly, what's scary about some of you. Despite Saul's religious activism, he put witches out of the land, Despite Saul's religious activism, he never truly sought God for God. It was always about him. You show me a man or a woman who is self-consumed, and I will show you an unconverted person. Saul reveals to us what false repentance looks like. Saul reveals to us what false repentance produces. We should learn from Saul and not wait to genuinely repent. Do you know that putting off repentance today may mean you never repent? You may not repent on your deathbed. Saul didn't. Run to this glorious Christ. Application number two. First Samuel began and ended with sorrow. But through all the sorrow, God is faithful. God's sovereignty is put on display here in unique ways. Alistair Begg says it like this. The ways of God are strange, but they are equally sure. And what he purposes, he accomplishes. The ways of God are strange, but they're equally sure. And what he purposes, he accomplishes. God is in control of world history, and God is in control of your personal history. I'm not saying it won't be messy. I'm not saying you will not experience some painful events. I'm saying when you look back, you will see the fingerprint of God on it. I want you to come away from this series. One of our pastors asked, like, what, what was some of your goals going into this series? What, what prayers did it develop for you, for our people? I want you to come away from this series trusting in God to narrate your story in a way that brings him the greatest glory. Church, you have to learn to rest in the strange providence of God. So 1 Samuel teaches us. Application number three. 1 Samuel's hunt for a king left us still looking for a king. It's hard to say goodbye to this book when it ended so horribly. Right? We're not laughing and smiling today. This is not a good ending. It's like when I read the book, The Boy in Striped Pajamas. What a terrible ending. No hope. What was the author thinking? We could say the same thing here. What a terrible ending. No hope. What was the author thinking? Well, the author ultimately is God, and he wanted you to see a failed king. In fact, this is the first in a long line of many failed kings. But rest well, dear friend, because your salvation doesn't depend on King Saul. It depends on King Jesus. Where Saul failed, Jesus succeeded. Saul will not be the only king to be stripped naked. 
He will not be the only king to hang naked. They beat and abused Jesus. They stripped him of all of his clothing. King Saul was placed under a tamarisk tree, but King Jesus was affixed to Calvary's tree. King Saul died because of his own sins. King Jesus died because of the sins not his own. King Saul had a group of valiant men who arose and took his body. King Jesus had a group of valiant women who arose to anoint his body. King Saul was buried never to rise again. King Jesus was buried to rise three days later. The Philistine gospel was preached in the Old Testament by hanging a dead Israelite body in the open. <laughs> Look, Israel lost their king! The Philistine gospel was also preached in the New Testament by hanging another dead Israelite body out in the open. Look, Israel lost their king. That may be the Philistine gospel, but no one was preaching that three days later. No, they were preaching God's gospel. And that gospel spread around the whole world and it reached you. Jesus is the better Saul bringing better hope to a sinful people. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we close this book with confidence in your sovereignty to arrange the details perfectly to bring Jesus into the world to redeem us fallen people. We close this book with confidence that you hear us when we cry and you comfort us when we mourn. We close this book with confidence that you providentially guide every detail of our lives. We close this book with confidence knowing that you met with us because we gathered in your glorious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.